it's live. Good day, Jacob. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things. I'm Jacob. I'm out. And on this podcast, we look at the kind of ethical questions you might ask in your day-to-day life, such as, are you a bad person if you work at Facebook? Or, in today's episode, is it wrong to send your child to private school? Bum, bum, bum. Worth saying, we're longtime friends. We founded a business together, two businesses now. Yeah. Um, check out stasher.com if you need luggage storage. Check out treepoints.green if you'd like to offset your carbon and receive rewards and also, you know, set up your company. We met studying a mix of philosophy and economics back at Oxford University nearly a decade ago. We're not even that old. We're in our mid-20s. Oh my goodness. We should say, our aim in this podcast is not to tell you what to think. It's more about like how to think. Like us. <laughs> but seriously yeah what's the right way to break down a question how do you go about getting an answer if if indeed there is a right answer and, and about how you structure your approach to difficult moral questions the likes of which we're posing every episode yeah exactly i mean we're big fans of nuance you know we pose our questions in typically yes no formats not not exclusively but i think the reason that they're interesting is because they are questions where the answer does seem to fit somewhere in the middle or you know, it, it depends on certain circumstances, and that's what we're exploring. The most interesting ethical questions in our lives lie in that gray area, in the fact that people have some disagreements and feel differently about different things. And today's episode, of course, follows a very similar theme. The question, as a reminder, is, is it wrong to send your child to private school? So, and as a product of the private educational system in this country, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a polite way of addressing the fact that we should say up front, we are your stereotypical middle-class kids with uh, private school guilt. Or not that stereotypical, as it turns out that only 7% of the country goes to private schools in the UK. That was a surprising statistic. As always, we're going to start off by considering the terms of the question, what the question means, what, what, you know, what constitutes private schools, etc. So in this question, one of the things we need to do is give a bunch of context on private schools. What are the impacts they have on people's lives? How diverse they are or aren't, as the case may be? why they may be good or bad things. First, however, to abstract away from the specific, this question seems to hinge around whether it may be wrong to confer exceptional privileges and benefits to your child, even if that may be unfair or or even harmful on some levels, like to society or perhaps to some extent to your child. The use of the word privilege is quite specific here, uh, and that means benefits that are not necessarily deserved. Yeah, I think in this specific case, the reason we may say that it confers benefits beyond what we may call deserved is by observing outcomes. Because, you know, a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm paying for education, but they still have to work hard in the education, right? Outcomes speak otherwise. Though private schools are selective, and they do have, you know, admission schemes which offer scholarships and bursaries, there's still not really enough evidence to suggest that the 7% of students who go really overlaps significantly with the 7% of students in the country who actually have the highest potential. Most people cannot afford to pay anything meaningful to education at, at all, uh, let alone, you know, 10,000 plus a year. I think the average fee is somewhere in the 10 to 15,000. Yeah, about 15. Uh, this is pounds, by the way, for foreign listeners. For all the kind of bluster that private schools say, like, oh, we're, we're doing our best to help other people. In reality, full bursaries make up just 1% of private school students. So that's, you know, not point not seven six seven percent of the overall student population. Mm. And since most people can't afford to make meaningful contributions to, to their children's studies, partial bursaries mostly actually benefit people in the top quartile anyway. So rather than, already rather than quite those, rich. Yeah, people rather than people who actually need it. You know, contrary to this fact, actually intelligence we know is roughly equally distributed across the spectrum for wealth. This is because aptitude regresses to the mean. 
and your parents' intelligence isn't perfectly correlated with their financial means. There are plenty of rich people who ain't smart. You know, you can name some former American presidents. That's right, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, and plenty more smart people aren't rich. And yet private school admissions, and hence onward success in life, is very heavily skewed towards the children of top wage earners. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll start off neutrally by looking at the specifics of private schools themselves, what benefits they may offer your children, and consider why they may be a good or bad thing at both a societal or an individual level. However, simply establishing whether private schools are good or bad doesn't totally answer this question. The morality of life is complex, and bad doesn't always mean wrong. So take an example, killing is bad, but nonetheless, sometimes it's right for reasons as diverse as stopping an assailant or euthanasia. Sometimes it may be the case that you have a greater duty that compels you over the specific duty to not do this bad thing. Sometimes it simply nets out better in the midterm. So all this said, I think an implication of the reason this is a compelling question is that a lot of people presuppose that private schools are unfair or bad, if you will. Simply put, if you think private schools are good, there's not really much to discuss except whether you've got satisfactory response to all that it's bad arguments. Yeah, I think, funnily enough, the only argument I could conceive of as to why it may be wrong to send your children to a private school, even if you think that they're actually generally a good thing, is if you think your own child is a bit of a nincompoop. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't, they don't deserve an excellent education. And yet your parents still sent you... <laughs> In this next section, we're going to give more context on private schools. What are they? Where did they come from? And first off, why may they be a good thing? Yeah, I think it's worth saying we're focusing on this very much from a British perspective, talking about a British issue. I'm sure, to be fair, like most of the argument is extremely analogous to other countries. Like you pretty much without translation can apply it, I'm sure, to America and similar places. Um, but obviously, Britain being you know, a, a very old empire, with a strong class history, uh, it has a unique historic context. Yeah, British private education is very much tied to the issue of class and privilege. We've said already that only 7% of the country's kids attend private schools. But what we see is those kids grow into adults who are way overrepresented at the best universities and in positions of power. What exactly is going on at private schools to cause this? So just quickly, when we say private schools, we're referring to fee-paying schools. These differ from state schools, which are funded by taxes and run by the government. Private schools are formally known as independent schools, meaning they're independently run. Confusingly, though, some of the poshest independent schools are known as public schools, and Eton is one such example. So for our US listeners, what you guys would call public schools, we call state schools or comprehensive schools. Public schools in the UK are ironically the poshest of the posh. Yeah, it's like the creme de la creme of fancy. Right, so the reason for these weird naming conventions is interesting. Uh, English law has always regarded education as a charitable endeavor. So public schools were set up to provide education to male students from poor or disadvantaged backgrounds. This is way back in the day, for which they received a charitable endowment. For the schools, it therefore made sense to extend their facilities to fee paying students as well at some point. And it didn't take long before the revenue from fees massively eclipsed the charitable endowments. Uh, through bursaries and scholarships, schools like Eton still retain their public status. But the vast majority of the kids there are paying you know, huge fees, large enough that Boris Johnson as prime minister cannot send his at least six children <laughs> on, his, on his current prime minister's wage. But for anyone who didn't hear that, that was an amazing story about Boris. Um, that, yeah. <laughs> there are rumors that there are injunctions stopping the announcement of more children. But the quote from an MP was that he has, quote unquote, 
at least six children. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, Imagine not knowing the exact number. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, the measly 150k Prime Minister salary or whatever it is just won't cut all those Ethan fees every year. No. Okay. It is something like 40 grand a year. Yes. So in the case of Eton, something like 6% of kids go there on a full scholarship, with the average across all private schools being only 1% who are mm-hmm. on full, scho- uh, full scholarships, full bursaries. That does actually make Eton sound rather good. But I suppose, you know, they're very rich and they have a lot of bad PR that they have to kind of combat by giving away a lot of bursaries. So for ease going forward in this podcast, when we're talking about public, independent or private schools, we'll just call them all private schools. But now you know the difference in the naming conventions. Quick fact, there are just over two and a half thousand private schools in the UK. As we said, they educate around 7% of the kids in the country. Some of them are particularly old. The oldest, as a fun fact, is the King's School in Canterbury, which was founded in 597 AD. So they're coming up for their 1500th anniversary okay. if we make it all the way to the year 2097. So yeah. we'll have climate change to contend with <laughs> first. But <laughs> I mean, that, that makes them how much older than, you, than America as a country? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like several multiples. Yeah, at least three times older, right? We'll cover some more context as we go, but I guess the key question to ask at this point is, you know, why, why might private schools be good? I mean, clearly people keep paying for them, even though education is provided for free by the state. What are the reasons people are doing this? And to answer this, I think it's worth thinking at this point about what the purpose of education is. Schools in particular serve lots of functions. There are places you learn fundamentals like languages and mathematics, the three R's. And what are the three R's? So it's a Victorian expression. They stand for reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's clearly coined by someone who could neither read nor write. Yeah, that, that, that joke is particularly funny if you're looking at the script, since writing starts with a silent W and arithmetic starts with an A. But yes, you know, actually, I'm being patronizing. I think our audience got it. Um, anyway, that is definitely valid, but I think... Importantly, schools are also places of social education, right? They are essentially children's quote-unquote second spaces. Uh, to, to quickly cover that concept, I think it's a sociology term. First space refers to your home. Second space refers to your work or the place that you spend most of your kind of quote-unquote productive time. Mm. Third space is like a communal social space. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and that's a really important fact, right? Like schools aren't just places that you take exams. They're places you learn how to make friends, how to meet people how to deal with difficult people. And if they're good schools, they will equip you with confidence to handle yourself in the world. And they'll give you the opportunity to learn skills that are academic, but also extracurricular. And that will be really formative part of your development. Yeah, I think that's really important to consider that a lot of people think about schools and education as like, you know, it's just learning stuff, right? No, this is, this is a very important institution to your formation as a person, your worldview, uh, your socialization, your your understanding of your relationship with authority. But all of that said, exams definitely matter too. Uh, to some parents, you know, probably too much. Uh, grades are one of the main outputs schools are measured on. So with all that said, let's take a look at private schools again. Measured on grades alone, you are more than twice as likely to get good grades at a private school. So 19% of A-level grades were A-stars in private schools compared with a national average of 8%. At GCSE, this jumps to 32% of private schools. Yeah, grades matter. Grades matter a lot because they heavily influence your chance of, for example, getting into university. Uh, And if we look at the stats there, 40% of Oxford students were privately educated. So 6% of the overall overall population go to private schools. 40% of the students at the best universities in the country went to private schools. So we're seeing private schools massively overrepresented there. They are the most extreme example, but 
They're also two of the very best unis in the entire world. Or at least Oxford is. <laughs> Take that, Cambridge. <laughs> if anyone went Lainbridge. to Cambridge, Cambridge, the other place. Uh, yeah, some, some quick, quick digress with some funny Oxbridge facts. Yeah, in, in Oxford, you're not supposed to say Cambridge. You're supposed to just call it the other place. It's like, it's like, like Macbeth, Vol- the Scottish place. Yeah, like, or, or like Voldemort. <laughs> you shall not be named. <laughs> uh, and they have, like, they have weird expressions. So like in Oxford, you know, when they're like at sports games and stuff, they say shoe the tabs. Uh, I actually don't know what the history of that is. Where, where uh, did the tabs I, come I, from? I can't remember. Also, but did you know, for example, I think people who graduate from Harvard are also called tabs. So Cambridge tabs are oh, called Cambridge, tabs. Massachusetts. I don't know if it's because of that. But yeah, Harvard graduates are also called tabs. And what do they say? And, and yeah, Cambridge's is much less interesting. They say GDBO. Goddamn bloody Oxford. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, we're not out of touch. Carry on. Yeah. But yeah, that reminds me of my, my drinking days back in <laughs> Oxford. It was a secret society ball. Even across a lot more unis, though, yeah, back to the point. Even across a lot more unis, there is significant overrepresentation of private school children. It might be tempting to look at this and think that private schools just teach kids better. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be true. Private schools can, for example, be better at coaching kids through exams, which isn't the same as being better at actually teaching them and or them having greater aptitude. Uh, at least not in any way that you know, reflects anything that's useful for later life, which is what actually matters. And they also offer way more training for university admission. So the school I went to actually had a ballot for Oxbridge admissions because so many kids apply. So you basically had to ballot which college you wanted to apply for, and then they distribute the applications to maximize your chance of success because really they don't want too many kids applying to the same college. So they have this whole system going on for churning out successful applicants. Yeah, I mean, a lot of top schools do that. I mean, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, colleges are kind of like houses. It's where you live and it's also where the tutors live and you just have to select and apply to one specifically. You don't just apply to the uni overall. Exactly. It's Um, where you earn house points like Gryffindor. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, because they've done this successfully year after year, these schools also have long lists of students who can share their own successful experiences and advise and help the next generation of applicants. And this trend continues when we get to jobs. Private school grads are again overrepresented among business executives and politicians, so people of power and influence. And we'll come back to the stats on politics in the next section, but something else is worth noting here. The friends and connections that you make at private schools, and then again at top universities, will also disproportionately go on to be powerful and influential. So through private schools, you effectively gain access to a network that benefits and follows you potentially your whole life. Yeah, that to be fair does all take quite a linear view of education. Grades gets you to uni, uni gets you to a job. Uh, But beside all that, private schools have a greater tendency to breed confidence, right? At at times, bordering on obnoxious arrogance. (laughs) Um, We don't have a stat to measure that. Teachers who move between state and private schools would probably agree with that. I I mean, you need only look at the kind of bluster of your... Boris Johnson, David Cameron types to... The Bullingdon boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a reason those kind of stereotypes exist. Last point. The rough spend per child in private school is almost three times that spent on a child in state school. To put some numbers to it, the government spends on average £5,000 per state school student, while private schools charge £15,000 on average per student and way more for boarders. So this means that private schools will tend to have much nicer facilities and offer a more quote-unquote rounded education consisting of plenty of good extracurriculars. Right. So all that considered, if you're looking to give your child a boost, private schools, just judging by the stats, look like a pretty good option. They certainly offer an education that will open a lot of opportunities. to mm. And it's worth noting at this point that beyond the educational value they provide to the children in their care, there are other broader good aspects too. So on a community or societal level, one obvious one is that private schools create jobs. Now, admittedly, if they didn't exist, there's a case to be made that a similar number of jobs might exist just in the state sector. 
However, because of the larger sums spent, they tend to create more jobs per student. Wow, that justifies it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shut down the podcast. No. Uh, another argument that gets made in their favor is that private schools are essentially centers for excellence, which is, which is no bad thing. Uh, they provide the leading standard of education. The UK, as a result, has developed an international reputation for its highest standards of education. And private schools, justified by higher grades, are therefore esteemed as, as centers of excellence in that regard. Uh, this kind of sets a bar for all schools to aspire to. And this is interesting because one of the arguments that's often made in defense of private schools is what's called the leveling down argument, i.e. if you were to get rid of private schools, you'd be lowering the average standard of education by removing these excellent institutions rather than what people say you should be focusing on, which is raising the average standard. <laughs> the expression is chopping off people's legs to make sure everyone's the same height, <laughs> right? And the assumption there is that you wouldn't see a redistribution in, in that kind of effort or, or that educational asset, just a net loss. Mm. Uh, I mean, this premise kind of makes it, a, we think, makes it a false dichotomy, and we'll, we'll come back and explain that in more detail later. But it's certainly one of the arguments that's made in, in favor. Um, sticking with the centers of excellence point, certainly there is a lot of competition among the top schools as well to beat each other. And as iron sharpens iron, so one school sharpens another. It's kind of a free market argument, right? Like a competitive capitalist argument. By making education something that can be bought and allowing market forces to kind of interact with them, it raises the standards naturally. And, and, and that's an important point in general, which we'll also come back to. Because for anyone who supports private schools, this is probably the main reason. If you can afford to pay for a better education, you should have the right to. It's like buying a nicer house or a nicer car or a nicer education for your kids. Yeah, it's, it's the fundamental kind of free market belief. You know, my, my liberty to do this is important. One more thing, although private schools are selective and although their main criterion is can you afford the school fees, <laughs> uh, they, they do offer bursaries. And, you know, an argument can be made that these are a great opportunity to give disadvantaged students a very significant boost in life which they can then you know, later pay back to their communities. There's an argument to be made around equality here. Uh, like, let's assume what matters isn't that everyone gets the same education, but that everyone gets a sufficient level. Uh, let's say state school provides that level. If private schools offer a way in for the best students as well, regardless of income, then we could argue that it's better for society overall that you know, there's the base level that's acceptable for everyone, and the very best students, irrespective of their wealth, get access to this better education. And, and what you're saying there is that the best students will do even better under the right tuition. And because of the impact they'll go on to have in science or politics or whatever, you actually net benefit society more by educating them in a really good way. Exactly. Yeah, it seems so. Because, you know, that could be what drives them into totally viable careers like storing luggage. <laughs> yeah. Running a tree point stock green. Check it out. Carbon offset. Or, or even, dare I say, running a philosophy podcast. And if listening to the morality of everyday things isn't good for society, then, then what is, Jacob? Those fees weren't wasted on us. No, sir. Thank you, Mum and Dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was some of the context on private schools and a look at their, you know, the reasons they may be good. Let's look at some of the, the other side of the argument. Uh, since in the question we're asking if it's wrong to send your kids to private school, there is presumptively something, you know, bad about them to consider. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't really be an interesting question. Indeed. So there are a few big bad points. The big bad points. <laughs> <laughs> we can consider them on an individual and a societal level again. On an individual level, I think there's only one point, really, and that's that private schools are exclusionary. Yes. So this basically means that you're limiting the people that your kids interact with to a, a very small circle of other wealthy offspring. Uh, and they grow up in a kind of bubble very comfortable bubble with fancy buildings and nice playing fields. 
but a bubble nonetheless. It's a term that it's a term that a lot of people kind of bandy about in in Oxbridge a lot, where you know people kind of say like, oh, that that person will never survive out of the bubble. And it's part of the reason a lot of people become PhDs. Like they, <laughs> uh, they just they can't survive outside of the bubble. Andy, that one's for you. <laughs> a friend of ours is doing a PhD. Anyway, uh, a very comfortable bubble. Uh, and if that sounds a bit academic, you know, let's let's put a question to to our listeners here. Let's put it to an extreme. Uh, I want you to consider for yourself: Would you want to send your child not just to you know your local private school, local day private school? You know, would you send your child to be a full boarder at Eton? Pause while you think about this. Hmm. Eton describes itself on its website as a modern, forward-thinking school that embraces innovation and new opportunities to provide an outstanding, progressive, and well-rounded education. However, it also gave the world Boris Johnson. It's funny how, you know, that's such a long sentence that it didn't say anything. <laughs> they could have just said, it's a school. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the reason that we've used this specific example, we've referred to eating quite a bit, is that I, I want people to consider, I suppose there's a general risk that some people feel that private schools can make you a bit too out of touch, too removed from society, and that an extreme like Eton actually wouldn't be worthwhile. Sorry if you disagree. And there is a kind of stigma attached to it. So personal example, I was chatting to some friends from football about private schools recently, and they were outlining their reasons why they didn't think private schools were right. And I, I found myself sort of thinking, please don't ask me where I went to school. Please don't ask me where I went to school. Jake didn't go to Eton, don't worry. I didn't go to Eton. But uh, it was mostly because, you know, I actually, I agreed with their arguments. You just, you don't want to look like a hypocrite. And I guess even if you are horribly out of touch, you'd rather quietly acknowledge it to yourself than be out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's one kind of big point to think about. But then I think beyond that kind of individual point, there are some much bigger points that we need to discuss. Should you be allowed to pay for better education at all at a societal level? Should education be something we can buy and sell on a market? Okay, so we alluded to this before. To some people, they might see no reason why not. After all, most things in life can be bought and sold. But I think, I think we'd argue that education is different. Uh, its effects are so deep and long-term and run from one generation to the next. Those with enough money are free to purchase and enjoy expensive houses, cars, and meals. But education is not just another material asset. It is fundamental to forming who you are. Michael Sandel has a great book called What Money Can't Buy. And in it, he makes two big points about the moral limits of markets. So firstly, by putting something up for sale, you corrupt the sanctity of the thing itself. And second, you expose it to the risks of bargaining power. So he gives lots of great examples. And, and a good one to think about, given recent context, is voting. People who love the free market love to say there's basically a market for everything. They, they want to open up the world to market forces. But we don't let people buy and sell votes, right? Because to do so would be to degrade the institution of democracy. Selling votes would be to value them in the wrong way. And it would cultivate bad attitudes and problematic behaviors. I think a couple other classic examples markets for organ donors, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, say someone in the Western world is like, oh, I'll pay $100,000 for a kidney. And, you know, there are plenty of people around the world who would absolutely give a kidney for $100,000. Does that mean that we should allow a market for that? Or is that a little too perverse? Another example, death. Jake, you told me an interesting example. Apparently, it's, it is actually permitted to kill a endangered black rhino for $150,000? Yeah, and I find the scheme so perverse because basically they, they'll sell hunting licenses for massive amounts of money, and that money goes on to fund the protection of an endangered species. But it just feels... <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit backwards. It does. It feels so weird that that's, that's the way you fund it. I don't know. I, it, I think the fact that it makes you feel uncomfortable hearing that, that speaks to the sort of moral yeah. dimension of it. And yeah. the fact that 
we shouldn't necessarily let the free market operate everywhere. There are some yeah. things we should limit yeah. its reach on. I mean, take another one. Say that there's a millionaire in the US who is a bit messed up and he says, I'm willing to pay a million dollars to kill someone. Again, there are a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world for whom a million is such a life-changing amount of money for their family that they would rationally volunteer for that, right? Does that mean that we should allow it? Does that mean that that person's not doing something wrong? Can you imagine how different Breaking Bad would have been? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Breaking Bad is such a funny show because the entire show is just resolved by free healthcare. <laughs> it's like, how am I going to pay for my cancer? Oh, wait, I don't need to. But yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's bring anyway, this back to education. Back, back on point. The point of all those examples is if we can make the argument and, and you know, can convince you that there are some goods that shouldn't be on free markets, I would then extend that argument to say that education should be one of those goods. It should hold a similar place in our society. We shouldn't see it as a, as a good that can be traded as a service or, or product. It's a human right. Uh, and to allow institutions to charge, even just for a higher standard of it, is to corrupt the value that we place on the education. And it makes the system fundamentally unfair. So what do you mean when you say unfair here? So we, we've already said how important education is to, you know, for example, your grades. But education as we mentioned, is important and formative in a much bigger way, certainly institutional education, schooling. We've seen the kind of advantages having access to an exclusive private education can bring. And I'd argue that it's unfair that these schools are so exclusive. And they're exclusive on the basis of wealth. Hypothetically, if they were exclusive on the basis of talent, would that be different? Let's say there were no fees or that the fees were very small. Would that still be unfair? I think not. Uh, definitely not in the same way or to the same extent. Um, it depends on your stance towards meritocracy, but that would certainly be much more meritocratic. Mm. But the fact that they're exclusive on the basis of your parents' income, which from the point of view of any child is totally morally arbitrary, that is definitively unfair. Yes. Yeah. I mean, schooling is just too important to be subject to arbitrary market forces and, and morally arbitrary factors. And not everything should be bought or sold. And in my view, schooling is one of those things. So I have to ask, what about private tuition? Let's assume for a second that private schools were abolished. You become minister for education. You get mm. rid of all of them or whatever system you impose. Would you also abolish private tuition or, or like paid for courses online? Yeah. So I think this is, this is the part where like we've been quite fervent on mentioning institutional education, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think no, for a couple of reasons. Like I said, schools are institutions. Children are spending upwards of 40 hours a week there. Private tuition is at best a top up to that. The school experience as a whole forms you as a person. The people that you experience uh, are, are such an important part. The, the, the actual you know, place you're going. Private tutoring and online courses, purely as a function of time available, just can't have the same impact. Right? Sure. Uh, if anything, this should be the reprieve of people who claim it would be leveling down. Like, fine. Like, if you're concerned that you're leveling down, you can just pay for a tutor. Fair points. So we've said that education shouldn't be bought or sold, and to do so is unfair. That's kind of based on principles. But now let's also look at the practical side of this. After all, private schools do exist and have done so for a very long time. So we have plenty of data on their impact. There's a, there's a good book on this, which I haven't read cover to cover, <laughs> uh, but I did listen to some good podcast episodes about. The book is called Engines of Privilege, and it's all about private schools. They give a bunch of reasons why private schools are bad for society at large. Uh, they include factors like it's bad for social mobility and meritocracy. They perpetuate inequality through generations. They deploy teaching resources suboptimally, and they're causing a democratic deficit. Some nice big words in there. You know, just to kind of signpost this, as always, we're not a policy podcast. A lot of evidence to back this up is, you know, based on actual, you know, cross-country examinations. They find that more equal education systems like Finland, where they 
do basically ban private education outperform. Mm. So let's talk about each of the points uh, that you just made. Private schools are bad for social mobility and meritocracy, you said. What does that mean? Well, to put it in plainer English, smart kids from state schools will find it harder to move up in life, whereas stupid kids from private schools can only fall so far. Hey man, I mean, having gone to one, you can surely think of some people <laughs> who, you know, they're doing whatever now and you're like, man, you would not be doing that if you were not, if you didn't like have the advantages of going to a private school. Yeah, we, we won't name names. That's, that's the social mobility point. And, and the idea that they're bad for meritocracy, we kind of touched on this already. Like, yes, they offer some amount of bursaries, but if you really believe in meritocracy, ideally you'd want the best kids to get the best education according to their abilities. So it's not even just about the best. In theory, you want all kids to be educated according to their talents and abilities and wealth shouldn't come into it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, as it stands in most Western societies, the greatest indicator of your, of your you know, future is how successful your parents were. So, you know, not meritocratic. And, you know, focusing on the next one, what does it mean to say that they perpetuate inequality through generations? Relevant to that point. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's a bit more self-explanatory. You know, if you go to a private school, get a good job, earn a lot of money, send your kids to private school. Uh, you know, it's a cycle and you're perpetuating it and it can run in the family. You know, it's why I've no doubt that Boris Johnson is sending his kids to Eton. Mm. Um, your family stays rich and well-educated from generation to generation. They're much more likely to achieve positions of power and get their kids into positions of power and, and know people in positions of power. So you have a family network that helps that too. Uh, and although going to private school is no guarantee of success, it's a little bit like playing Monopoly with triple the starting money and the chance cards are all stacked in your favor, like friend's dad secures internship at City Firm, collects money. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. It, it sounds like a small thing, but yeah, just you know, operating in a world of business, I can tell you that people do business with people they like, they do favors for people, like people give other kids internships and stuff. And those opportunities just don't exist if you went to a local comp and don't know anyone in positions of power. The issue of class and privilege is, is a big deal there too. So because their students are likely to go on to become successful and schools are set up as charities, they're likely to receive big donations in the future, which lets them build fancy facilities with people's names on them. <laughs> this happens a ton in the US. Can you look up Harvard's endowment? Sure. Yeah, so like the university endowment funds in the US are huge. To give oh, an example. Hell. Yeah, did you not know this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, university endowment funds in the, in the US Harvard University is 42 billion. I know that they're one of the major investors in a lot of venture capital firms. Cool, wow, okay, that was a bit wow. mind-blowing. Next reason, what does deploying teaching resources suboptimally mean? If we assume that there are only so many teachers in the country, and in some subjects like maths, you know, that's a very limited number to be sure, then having so many of them dedicated to teaching the 7% of kids could be seen as suboptimal. Yeah, it might be a quality argument too, a bit like in our footballers episode, higher wages offered by private schools could attract good teachers away from the state sector. And lastly, we have the democratic deficit. Now, this is the idea that the ruling elite or our politicians are not properly representative of the population as a whole and of their experiences. Yeah, I mean, here are some striking facts for you, right? The current ruling party in the UK is the conservatives, the Tories, as we call them. Unlike the US, our legislature, so the, the people who do the voting in, in house, uh, house of Parliament, and the people who do the actual enacting of government, they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. And when they have a majority, they can basically make the laws and enact the laws, right? 45% of that party, which is currently in power, went to private school. Remember that the, the, the general population, 7% are privately educated. So that is way out of proportion. Mm. I mean, when we look at MPs as a whole, 30% were privately educated. Even in the case of labor, 15% were privately educated. 
but I mean, the, the 45% in the ruling party is, is just, you know, an obscene expression of the level to which like privilege is embedded in our systems. This is a serious problem when we need these people to be able to empathize with the experiences of an entire population in order to legislate for and represent them effectively. It, it reminds me a lot of the Marcus Rashford free school meals thing, right? So for, for anyone who doesn't know, Rashford plays for Man United. Football. He's the yeah, football player. Uh, he's their number 10. And uh, back before he was in the United Academy, he used to be on the free school meals program. Which we provide free school meals to kids at schools here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So the government decided to pause this program when the coronavirus pandemic broke out. But thanks to Rashford's campaigning, they reinstated it and even extended it during the summer. And then shockingly, the same debate happened again in the autumn when they tried to pause the program and Rashford came out and fought for it again. Um, I saw a great cartoon where there was a photo of Rashford with number 10 on his back and it said, finally, some leadership from number 10. <laughs> <laughs> number 10 is, is the address of the Prime Minister. Yeah, 10 Downing yeah. Street. Um, and so just to, to kind of tie that in, the point is, is that policy position of opposition of free school meals? To what extent does that put them in a position where they don't quite understand how profoundly affecting it is to take away free school meals from children. Yeah. You can see like when people talk about people being out of touch, this is why. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's literally taking food out of hungry children's mouths. Um, <laughs> but here's another, you know, more shocking stat. Let's look at prime ministers. Okay. Of all 55 PMs ever, 20 went to Eton, a single <laughs> school. That's insane. Like what is the deal with this one school? Right. If 20 prime ministers came from a state school, we'd want to know what was going on at that state school and teach it at every school, right? And lately that has become a really big talking point uh, because of Boris and his cabinet. No matter how selective or excellent Eton claims to be, there's something wrong with the fact that Etonians have such a high track record of holding cabinet positions and leading the country. It speaks to the power of the networks these kind of institutions create, which we mentioned earlier. So say what you like about private schools. The fact is, if you take two kids that want to enter politics, one from state school, one from Eton, the kid from Eton is statistically way more likely to succeed and probably end up running the country. Yeah, and I guess the, the really significant point to consider there is, is that because Eton is teaching something amazing? Or is that because kids at Eton know other kids at Eton who are MPs or the children of kids who are MPs and basically have a network that gets them in there? It's an engine of privilege. An engine of privilege. Good name for the book. So that was, that was a pretty lengthy discussion of why private schools may be good or bad, practically, morally, individually, even at a societal level, right? Next, we marry this with the titular question, because remember, a bad thing can still be right in some circumstances, a white lie, for example, and a good thing can be wrong in some circumstances, doing charity just to build your social media following, for example. This gives us a little tree, a decision tree of sorts, with different branches that we can explore, right? Because it's right, wrong, good, bad. And we, we've actually literally got this up on a whiteboard here at Jacob HQ. <laughs> it's true. We do have the whiteboard. I don't tend to call my apartment Jacob HQ, but that's cool. Yeah. Reminder of the question, is it wrong to send your child to private school? Right. So to begin, let's look at the side of the board that argues that it's not wrong. Okay. Um, as we said, to start with, you know, if after everything we discussed, you still believe that private schools are overall good institutions uh, for your children, for society at large. There's not tons to discuss on the, you know, it's not wrong. You know, there are examples where right isn't good and wrong isn't bad, but by and large, you know, they overlap. So, of course, if you don't think it's bad, it's not wrong mm. to send your children there. It's fairly uncontroversial. Yeah, it's uncontroversial. You know, I, I, I take it if you have this point, you're either accepting the free market argument, you know, my freedom to buy what I want supersedes your right to equal opportunity, 
some argument that private schools do enough good to level the playing field through bursaries and stuff, or maybe you're accepting that leveling down argument that we'd just be net reducing the, the level of educational output by getting rid of them. So while we don't totally agree with that, it's, it's a respectably coherent stance given those premises. And remind it, you know, we're, we're not here to tell you what to think. We're just helping to provide a framework for coherent and considered thought. I do, however, want to address that false dichotomy around the leveling down argument. I just don't buy it, and, and it feeds back into the democratic deficit argument too. Imagine, if, if more of the most powerful and influential people in the country had to send their children to state schools, so let's say MPs, the rich and powerful, then of course they'd have to care significantly more about making sure schools are decently funded and that as many children as possible who our own kids are interacting with are spending time in stable family environments. You know, you, you, it brings it all together. It ties your fortunes to the fortunes of the masses, the great unwashed, whatever. <laughs> Plus, hell hath no fury, like a disgruntled middle-class parent who wants the best for their kids. So you know that they'd be pushing school agendas avidly. It's actually, I don't know if it's a point that's made in the book or not, but it, it would be a really good injection of energy into the state school system mm. if there weren't private schools and if everyone were, were all in it together. Yeah, I mean, quite simply, take the free school meals example. Do you think that they would be cancelling free school meals if it was the, you know, their own kids who needed them? Or, I suppose not the free element, but you know, if they sent their own kids, they'd be improving the quality of the food, not be, not be <laughs> fighting about whether people should have it. And you know, I think it, it makes sense. Like, obviously, this argument we're making doesn't, you know, definitively necessarily cancel out the previous argument, but I think it's a strong and intuitive reasoning as to why you wouldn't just be reducing the output; you you would be redistributing it because it would help eliminate that democratic deficit and force us to improve the state education system if more people actually who, who were you know powerful couldn't just subvert it or, mm. or circumvent it rather so it, it does feel like something of a straw man it's again the term false dichotomy means that you're unnecessarily saying you know it's this or that when actually yeah. there's a there's a range of things in the middle and finland is a great example there is stuff in the middle i think it's just sort of it's a convenient way to like not have to think about the problem be like oh it'll be it'll be too bad but no i i think you're right i think there's a point in the middle here yeah okay that all handles the it's fine to send your children to school and it's good that private schools exist that whole side of the argument but what if you think private schools are bad could you still justify sending your children there in such a circumstance so there's a few strands we can go down here firstly the one that most parents our own included seem to relate to is that as a parent you have a special duty to your children and that must be considered above many other duties including the duty to support overall fairness in society. I have to admit, you know, we're a couple mid-twenties guys. I often eat microwave rice with a tin of beans as a meal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how relevant that is, but the, the point is... <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Yeah, the point is I don't often, like, you know, have to consider how I would feel about my own children, right? Mm. Yeah, hopefully I have them one day, but still. I, I'm on the receiving end of it. It's just hard for me to personally imagine how my love for my own child would factor into my own moral decision making. You know, it's credible though. We can see that we may have, you know, clearly special moral obligations uh, by order of degree that we know someone with immediate family being the closest people to us. It's, I suppose, silly to think that I owe the same moral duty to, you know, a random person in central Mongolia as I do to my brother or my parents. Or your future children. Mm. So the tougher question there is whether that duty is powerful enough to overcome your duty to social fairness. I mean, it's an argument. <laughs> I don't know that there's any definitive way to argue that point. I mean, it's, it's often the case that you can identify, okay, this is the sort of thing where we draw a line. The question is, where do we draw it? Another argument is one that, that this actually can be married with and isn't mutually exclusive from, is one that we call the micro-macro problem. 
basically the argument is that I'm a very small part of the system. Um, and that essentially makes, you know, what makes sense collectively kind of independent from what makes sense for me individually. Uh, you know, I can think something's bad, but my personal abstention will not change that situation. Mm -hmm. And it will actually negatively impact me and my children. Hence the rules for us as a whole don't necessarily apply to me as a single person, as a lone actor, because my actions wouldn't have the intended impacts unless we have some sort of collective compact. In economics, we would, we would call this a classic prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, a prisoner's dilemma is such a brilliant concept. And actually, once you're familiar with it, you see them everywhere. Uh, and like Anne said, it kind of drives at the fact that what's right for people to do individually ends up leading to a worse collective result. But it, it, it creates a kind of problem that you can't get out of. So the original prisoner's dilemma story goes something like, two people are taken prisoner and they're interrogated separately and they're told, if you rat out the other person, you'll be spared and they'll spend years in prison. And you're like, oh God, I don't know if they're going to betray me. Should I betray them? However, if you both didn't rat on each other, they'd be unable to get a strong case against you. You'd probably both be fine. Yeah. So definitely the best thing to do is for you both to stay silent. However, if you map this out on a little table with the sort of points you assign to each, each combination of outcomes, it always ends up working out that the best thing for you to do is to rat out your friend because that's what leads to the best outcome for you individually. And you have to consider the risk that what if you stay silent and they betray you? And you see this represented in TV all the time. Like I think the end of Love Island is <laughs> a prisoner's dilemma. Just as a, Oh, stick or twist. Right? Yeah, 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 just as a sort of pop culture reference there. Yeah, you either split the money or like you get more but you can steal it all. You can steal you can it all. It and yeah, and the problem, the problem is basically if you trust the other person, they might screw you. Exactly, exactly. And to bring that back to education, what we're basically saying there is that you might hold the position that private schools are bad for society. However, if you abstain from sending your kid there, you're depriving your kid of an advantage and private schools still exist. And therefore, it's, it's worse than just saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my kid there. What's rational for me individually isn't necessarily what's best for society. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's some sort of, uh, the thing is you can even have it nuanced enough to say like, I actually support us agreeing to not do this, but it doesn't make sense unless we all do it together. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so interestingly, this is, this is exactly what left-wing politicians get lambasted for all the time, supporting better public education whilst themselves using private education for their children. <laughs> it's, it's actually literally a plot line in the thick of it. Oh, uh, a great show. It's a good show, political uh, comedy show. And basically, if you haven't got it from, from the previous conversation, I think we both strongly agree that this is, you know, this is unfair. You know, it's, it's not hypocritical to find yourself in this situation. It's, it's wholly unreasonable to expect that everybody who, you know, wants change towards more fairness, that they must also be martyrs to make that point or else they're hypocrites. If benefits are only achieved by us cooperating, then it's totally rational and possibly morally correct to simultaneously advocate for that collective change whilst not volunteering to do it just by yourself. And tax is a really good analogy to this, I think. It, of course, benefits you in the short term to pay less tax. Nobody, nobody likes paying taxes. But in the long term, you might see avoiding taxes unsustainable or unfair. Or by, rather, everybody. Avoid. Yeah, everybody. By avoiding taxes, you ultimately make society as a whole less productive over the course of decades, hurting you. And not to mention, this may cause all kinds of harm that you care about alleviating. Yeah, that said even if you feel that way, it doesn't really make sense for, for you alone to just volunteer to pay more tax. 
it, it's the worst of both worlds. You're out of pocket and it doesn't solve the problem. Mm. You know, it may be reasonable in this case to say that your adherence to this policy is conditional and other people also do it here. This avoids a free rider situation. I suspect a lot of people will kind of fall into a camp like this. You believe that private schooling is a system that isn't really fair. Maybe you even support reform or abolition, but you don't see withholding that benefit from your own family as a moral necessity of the argument due to the micro macro problem and due to your own duties to your children. So you actually <laughs> ideally want legislation to remove the temptation. Yeah, I think it seems reasonable. I don't know if it 100% describes my position, but it's definitely like one of my top two. Like I totally agree that the taxes point, for example, is a great analogy. Like I, I support higher taxes, but you know, it's, I think it's pretty ludicrous to call me a hypocrite for saying that and not volunteering extra taxes. Hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump to the other side then and consider why it may be wrong to send your children to a private school. Firstly, we'll make short shrift of the rather funny argument we discussed at the very beginning, which is you think private schools are a good thing, but it's wrong to send your child. I guess there's a number of personal circumstances relating to the specific school. So maybe a teacher or some teaching you really don't support or your specific child. You didn't send one child, so it's unfair to send the other. They wouldn't make good use of the opportunity, etc. Point there, it's a niche argument. I don't think it's super relatable. Don't really think it needs much explanation. Uh, what about it's wrong to send your kids and private schools are bad? We're basically looking at the opposite side of the coin versus the last arguments. I can see some arguments along the individual negative aspects of private schools, firstly. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, many people may be happy to send their children to a private school, but may still want to steer clear of the almost comically removed sorts of schools that are, for example, single sex, require boarding even from a very young age, or even within the context of private schools, are extremely socially exclusive. And the fear may be that the benefits in education and network don't overcome some of those more social negatives that limit your child's personal development. And, and, and the fact that they'd be missing out on interactions with a wider cross-section of society. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a somewhat, maybe a biased picture we're painting. You know, maybe some of our listeners went to some of the, you know, elite, elite private schools uh, or aspired to send their children there. But um, I think it's a, an argument that I certainly relate to. Long story short, I went to a private school relatively late in my schooling. My family was based abroad in Istanbul. And international schools suck and are expensive. It's, you know, it's a pretty constrained market, right? Like there's not, you know, the kids need somewhere to go to school and you're run for profit. Nice sweeping um, statement there, I love it. Yeah, no, not, not all international schools suck, this one did. But my parents, because of their employment, couldn't leave yet. So my older brother and I came to a reasonably priced mixed gender school in the UK. And we consciously as a family didn't even consider the most fancy and expensive schools, irrespective of whether uh, we could afford it or would have got in. It was purely because of the level of social exclusion, which both we as kids and, and our parents considered actually maybe unhealthy. Mm -hmm. My own dad went to his local comprehensive in, uh, in Northwest London and speaks very fondly of the mix of people that he encountered during his schooling and how it shaped him in his worldview. Positive encounters gave him rich insights into different people's cultures and, and their struggles. You know, there were far fewer negative encounters than, you know, the Daily Mail or The Sun would have you believe. But to the extent that they happened, they still had positive learnings to share regarding a connection with life in the quote unquote real world, which, you know, a lot of Etonians arguably don't encounter. You know, the real world isn't always pristine and sheltered. And Manus is going to be absolutely thrilled by a reference to himself on the podcast that doesn't reference his BMI. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've ruined it now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Manus. <laughs> 
So far, this argument has focused on the most extreme private schools, but at some level, perhaps this argument can ultimately extend to all private schools. And, you know, we think that the relative benefits of education don't merit the social exclusion, no matter what school you should go to. Next, we may consider that we simply do not agree that your duties to your children supersede your duties to behaving as a citizen who believes in fairness. As we so often do, we could refer to Mr. Emmanuel Kant, not that he was necessarily against private schools, but in reference to his categorical imperative. If we view it as necessary to support fairness, to not send your kids to private school, most rules-based moral frameworks are categorical, else they just become outcomes-based ones. Yeah, which is, which is basically to say, without having to explain what his categorical imperative is, if you form moral rules, they are categorical. They always apply. It, it defeats the point to simply work around them and say, pick like, and choose. Yeah, to pick and choose when they apply. No, it, it's morality. It's fixed. If you want to learn more about Kant, it's all over our YouTube channel. We've got some great short videos that explain yeah. stuff. And so kind of to highlight this point that, that your duty to your children doesn't supersede your duty to, you know, being a fair and responsible citizen, we can take this argument ad absurdum to make the point. You know, firstly, one step that direction. There have been actual scandals recently in the US where famous celebrities were caught essentially bribing universities to take their children. I think most people agree that this is clearly crossing a line, yeah. right? Your duty to your children doesn't permit this level of unfairness. Let's go, you know, totally crazy, even more extreme. Say your child came second in, in you know, some competition. They, they just missed out on a place to university, for example, mm -hmm. right? How many parents would hence say it's acceptable to murder the child who beat their own <laughs> to guarantee their child the place, right? There's quite clearly a line beyond which the duties to our children do not cross. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> So, mum, dad, stop killing people for me. Um, no, I mean, it, it, it's not an infinitely powerful argument, right? Uh, and, you know, hence we may argue that point, perhaps, the point at which we draw this line is low enough that making use of a private school is impermissible. Hmm, interesting. Cool, and, and, and for the micro-macro argument, it's somewhat reminiscent of the veganism discussion we had, right? So, on the one hand, perhaps we're kind of powerless, on the other, large movements are made of small individual actions. Perhaps you're kind of absolved, or at least you're conscious of the issue if you're in the camp who support more fairness but still use private schools in the meanwhile. However, if you just stick your head in the sand, then perhaps this argument of my actions don't affect things. It's just an easy way to abdicate responsibility. Fundamentally, as with so many other issues we're facing, if we as consumers can send a strong market signal that we want fairer and more ethical policies, that helps to drive real reform. Yeah, and so you choosing to do that is a necessary part of that. So you have a moral obligation to not send your children to a private school. I think a final point of just practicality to consider on that, on that final one, you know, if we're doing like a consequential weighing, realistically, if you're considering sending your children to a private school, more likely than not, you actually live in an area with good state schools. So the opportunity cost may not be as large as it may seem. It, it's just, it's, it's, an, it's not realistic that for most people, we're basically saying, it's Eton or the local comprehensive that's often referenced on Daily Mail headlines, <laughs> right? Like, that's just not the case. It's probably a nice neighborhood with a decent school and, you know, it's not much in it between them. So a consideration or an argument, which means that it's not justified, could be that the opportunity cost to your children isn't large enough, given that they do seem to be wrong mm. or, or bad, sorry. Um, also, another practical point, uh, the pendulum is, is actually kind of swinging back the other way at the moment. There's, there's more and more concerted efforts to redress balance at top universities, for example, and to avoid monocultures at universities and at workplaces. Unnecessarily grouping your child into 
actually a, an increasingly competitive group may not be in their best interest. I, I know from the small amount that you've interacted uh, with Oxford applications, that's, that's certainly the case. Yeah, they're definitely trying to make a conscious effort to up their statistics. I mean, their statistics are some of the worst out there. They've got 60% state admissions at the moment. They need to bring that number up. And yeah. you're right. I mean, if, if anything, if they, if they were to set like a hard quota on that, that would severely incentivize parents of private school kids to game the system and probably take their kids out of private school in order to sort of meet the qualification. And yeah. it, would be a, it would be an interesting sort of way of actually yeah. addressing the issue. And I mean, also to consider is that more and more often the applications are taken in context, right? Mm. So actually sending your child to a private school means that you know, the expectation for private school applicant, applicants is higher because yeah. Yeah. the That's places true. they're applying to know that they have more help. So suddenly it's like, unless going to the school actually helps drive your score up by X amount, actually they would have been considered stronger uh, before. And they're also competing in a smaller, if, it's, if it is selective, tighter field. So it's a trend to watch out for. Cool. I think that brings us pretty much to the end. Before we do, and where do you sit on this? Would you send your child to private school? I... I think the truth is that it's so hard to say without specific context. So for example, I mentioned that like, oh, if you're, if you're the type of person who can send your kid to private school, you probably have access to decent state schools. That depends, right? Mm. I personally feel like my ideal outcome would be that I lived near a relatively strong state school, which maybe is defeating the point, but I don't want to turn my children's outcomes into things that I'm you know, using as bargaining chips for for, yeah, for your own principles. Yeah, for my own principles or whatever to satisfy me. I, I would like them to get the best education possible. I would ideally like to avoid private school educations if possible. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that if I didn't feel that there was a strong state school nearby that I would not send them. I think in that case, I would fit in the micro macro. Like, I would fervently push for reform to make it more and more fair, but I certainly wouldn't punish my own child. Somewhat unsurprisingly, I agree. <laughs> I actually thought this might be one we differed on, but your 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 conclusion was more more sort of in the middle than than I expected. I yeah. think I said there was two that are my favourite. There's like I, I kind of sit between them. <laughs> yeah, I well I agree. I think in in an ideal world, I'd abolish private education, but I'd keep the high standards and great facilities of private schools. You know, I wouldn't wind them up. Uh, you, you'd phase in sort of state admissions. You'd phase in government oversight and mm. and what you'd want to do is have some sort of meritocratic streaming system in place that means you, you you qualify for them on the basis of something other than wealth and finland does this well finland's a great example if you're interested in this kind of thing do check it out there's uh, there's a lot about how that is great for overall social performance in my personal case would i send my child to private school you know the micro macro thing i think kind of works and i probably would I, even though i prefer an overall situation where you don't have to make that choice. As long as that relative disparity exists, you'd want what's best for your kids. I know from experience, I had a great time at the school I went to. So I'd want the same opportunities for my kids. I'd want them yeah. to have access to a great education provider that I could afford it. There's something, you know, something we didn't mention, but something that private schools do well is they make they make education a real positive, even among kids. Like some, sometimes I think one of the challenges I know from friends who've been to state schools is, you know, you get bullied for doing your homework, right? That's, it's not an environment that's conducive to, to good learning. Whereas in private schools, that whole attitude is flipped. Like people who perform well, uh, respected among their peers, that's even greater the case at places like Oxford and Cambridge, right? And that's, yeah. that's a really positive environment in which to study. Yeah, I recall one thing that really struck me when I first turned up was, you know, you talk to people, you know, they'd say something like, oh, you know, I want to 
achieve something pretty meaningful. I, I suppose <laughs> like if anyone is going to achieve that thing, you're, you're a pretty good contender right now. That's what Ant said when I told him about my philosophy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, guys. Well, let's just quickly wrap up the episode with some listeners' comments. So the football one was interesting. Uh, by and large, actually, I'm going to put it out there. I was a little bit disappointed with some of the comments we got on the football one, and mostly on Reddit, because I felt like people didn't engage with the explanation is not a justification argument. And they were just like, look, man, football's economics. This is how it works. I was like, yeah, I know. We know how it works. <laughs> it's still, it's a, there's a moral dimension to this that goes beyond economics. Um, and hopefully that's a point that we've made clear in this discussion in schools when we talked about is education something you should be allowed to pay for. And you got a, you got a comment. Uh, actually, it was, it was to our Facebook page. Thank you to uh, Amin al-Baghdadi. He actually asked a question. It was around the fact that, you know, some of the UK will know that a famous serial killer recently passed away uh, due to personally refusing COVID treatment. And the question was just around whether it's acceptable to discriminate against people that we consider to be bad people, in this case, serial killers, when it comes to treating them or helping them. And, you know, how is this relevant during the pandemic? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and guys, do send in thoughts like that. Any, any questions you have that you think would be interesting for discussion, we're happy to take on pretty much anything. It's basically that classic question of the doctors. Two people come into A&E in a row. First, someone who committed a crime. Secondly, the person who they just assaulted. General A&E process is to treat people on the time that they come in because you shouldn't be making moral judgments, right? Mm. But you know, this is quite a difficult circumstance. Should you, should you treat the person who they uh <laughs> they assaulted first. yeah interesting interesting so think about that uh, and let us know and that's a question that we'll we'll tackle in future in our next episode i think what we want to look at is voting and democracy uh we didn't want to tackle it too soon in the aftermath of the u.s elections and i felt like there was a point where the whole world became a little bit fatigued with just the entire sort of question of voting altogether so many people were saying like you know i never never want to have to think about pennsylvania again yeah. <laughs> we'll never hear pennsylvania it will be too soon but yeah so one of the questions we settled on at the moment is do you have a civic duty to vote yeah um a final plug guys please do leave us a review on on um, apple podcasts it means a great deal it helps other people find us Follow us on social media, particularly our Facebook page, because it's easy to interact with people there. Do check out our new project, treepoints.green. You're conscious of your effect on the planet and what an easy way that you can subscribe to resolve that. Treepoints is really cool. We're taking a gamification approach to the problem of climate change and give you a really easy way to go carbon neutral and earn rewards in the process. So if you want to sign up, uh, you get bonus treepoints at the moment. And let us know on the podcast. We'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, guys. Thank you. See you next episode. See you guys. Thank you.